BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When people ask me about what I think are the most incredible, surprising, or mind-boggling moments in world history, my mind always goes to the era of first contact between Europeans and the indigenous people of North and South America. Specifically, the conquests of the Spanish conquistadors in Mexico, Central, and South America always blow my mind. Those of you who are longtime fans of the podcast know that the conquest of Mexico was actually one of the first topics I ever covered. And that's because I think it's absolutely amazing. Well, it was horrific and in many ways deeply saddening, but it's also one of the most undeniably dramatic and enthralling stories in human history. But there's a debate out there among armchair historians about which Spanish conquest was more improbable, surprising, and ultimately devastating. Was it the toppling of the Mexica or Aztec Empire by Hernán Cortés? Or was it his cousin Francisco Pizarro's unlikely conquest of the Inca Empire? For his part, celebrity geographer Jared Diamond seems drawn to Pizarro's exploits. In fact, Pizarro's collision with the Incas acts as an important framing device for his 1997 bestseller, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Jared Diamond ends part one of his book by recounting at length the fateful meaning between Atahualpa, the Sapa Inca or emperor of the Incas, and Francisco Pizarro and his force of 168 Spaniards in the Incan mountain town of Cajamarca. Now, the history podcaster in me is just dying to give you all sorts of historical context to help you understand the very specific circumstances of this meeting. But Jared Diamond doesn't really do that in his book. So maybe I won't either. Here's how Diamond sets up this moment in 1532. Quote, the most dramatic moment in subsequent European-Native American relations was the first encounter between the Inca emperor, Atahualpa and the Spanish conquistador, Francisco Pizarro, at the Peruvian highland town of Cajamarca on November 16, 1532. Atahualpa was the absolute monarch of the largest and most advanced state in the New World, while Pizarro represented the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V also known as Charles I of Spain, monarch of the most powerful state in Europe. 
Pizarro, leading a ragtag group of 168 Spanish soldiers, was in unfamiliar terrain, ignorant of the local inhabitants, completely out of touch with the nearest Spaniards, 1,000 miles to the north in Panama, and far beyond the reach of timely reinforcements. Atahualpa was in the middle of his own empire of millions of subjects and immediately surrounded by his army of 80,000 soldiers, recently victorious in a war with other Indians. Nevertheless, Pizarro captured Atahualpa within a few minutes after the two leaders first set eyes on each other. End quote. <laughs> it's a good hook, right? Maybe that's why I kind of pinched it for the start of this podcast. Now, if you're new to the story of Pizarro and Atahualpa, then I wouldn't blame you for being like, wait, what? Pizarro captured the king of the Incas just like that? How did this go down? Well, after this setup, Diamond then quotes at length from eyewitness descriptions of the event provided by Spanish conquistadors. Now, I think it's worth noting that he does not quote from the one known Incan source for this event, but let's just set that aside for now. Still, the drama of the moment comes through clearly. Atahualpa was currently on a victory tour of an empire he had only very recently claimed after a bloody civil war. His reign as Sapa Inca had only been ensured just a few months earlier after his generals had scored a decisive victory over the forces commanded by his brother, who many believed was the legitimate Sapa Inca. Still, Atahualpa's army had proved to be the superior force, and now he was clearly in control of the empire. We're told by some sources that the very same day that Atahualpa had been informed of his general's ultimate victory, he was also told that a strange group of foreigners had just landed on the coast. Now, that seems almost too darkly ironic to be true, but hey, that's what we're told. When it became clear that these foreign forces weren't going anywhere, a meeting was arranged at the mountain town of Cajamarca. This was sort of like an Inca resort town due to its proximity to some relaxing hot springs that were enjoyed by the Inca emperors. Atahualpa clearly had no idea who the Spanish were, what reputation preceded them, and what their intentions were with his empire. He likely saw them as supplicants who had come to pay their fealty to the newly victorious Sapa Inca. But guys, I'm cheating here a little bit. I'm giving you all sorts of context. It's just, it's just what we do here. I should point out, Jared Diamond doesn't really go into this much detail, but I mean, for the story to really pop off, you gotta know this stuff. Anyway... Francisco Pizarro, on the other hand, had hatched a daring and potentially suicidal plan. The Spanish conquistador wasn't there to talk. He was there to orchestrate a kidnapping. He believed that if he could capture the king, like Cortes had done to Montezuma of the Mexica Empire, 
he would gain a key strategic and psychological advantage that would make a conquest possible, despite the long odds. Here's how we're told the meeting went down. The Spanish arrived in the walled town before Atahualpa entered. There, they took up hidden positions in hopes of springing an ambush. Atahualpa came to Cajamarca with a huge force. We're told that it was between 40,000 and 80,000 troops. However, it's important to note that this was an army on parade. They didn't come to Cajamarca to fight. They were on a victory lap of the empire. Atahualpa also kept this massive force well outside the walls of the city. We're told that they were about a league away, so that's like roughly five kilometers. But here I go again. I'm underscoring details that I think are important to know, but Diamond kind of skates right past this stuff. Anyway, Atahualpa entered the city of Cajamarca with an entourage of four to 6,000 unarmed servants and retainers, and they were all dressed to impress. The Incan emperor was born on a litter, decorated with colorful feathers. His entourage was dripping with elaborate gold and silver headdresses and all sorts of other finery. The Spanish, meanwhile, laid in wait, with the cavalry strategically hidden in the city alleys. When Atahualpa reached the center of the town square, he was puzzled to find it nearly empty. Atahualpa found this to be very puzzling, as he thought this was going to be some sort of diplomatic engagement. So, you know, what's up, and why am I being kept waiting? The king was eventually approached by a single Franciscan friar from Pizarro's company. By way of a translator, the friar and Atahualpa proceeded to have a broken, confused conversation about the tenets of Christianity, the Sapa Inca accepting the Catholic faith, and ultimately becoming a vassal of the king of Spain. Now, Atahualpa was incredulous to these requests. He made it clear that, no, he wasn't about to be anyone's vassal. He was the Sapa Inca. As for the religion, well, Atahualpa was offered a Bible that he picked up and examined. It's notable that this was probably the first book that he had ever encountered. Now, according to the Spanish source used by Diamond, and I feel bound to tell you that this version of events has been questioned, but according to that source, the final straw came when Atahualpa grew tired of the Bible that had been offered to him, and he, quote, threw it away from him, four or six paces, his face a deep crimson, end quote. With that, the priest gave the signal. The Spanish fired their guns and sprang from their hiding places. The hidden cavalry charged forth, and a massacre got underway. The Spanish quite easily cut through the shocked and unarmed Incan entourage. According to the sources, Pizarro himself headed directly for Atahualpa and tried to pull him down from his litter. One Spanish eyewitness tells us that, quote, 
He could not pull Atwahelpa out of his litter because it was held up too high. Although we killed the Indians who held the litter, another at once took their place and held it aloft. And in this manner, we spent a long time overcoming and killing Indians. End quote. Eventually, we're told that it took a small cavalry charge to topple the Sapa Inca from his high seat and into the hands of Pizarro. My God, just imagine that. The Spanish cutting through dozens upon dozens of unarmed attendants who died in droves just to keep the king sitting proudly aloft. My God, it's just a wild scene. The Spanish ambush had been so surprising and so shocking in its ferocity that the conquistadors never faced any opposition from the army that was waiting a league away outside of the city. The sound of the guns mixed with the terror of the fleeing survivors and the news that Atahualpa had been captured sent the assembled army into a panic. Despite the fact that they had the Spaniards hugely outnumbered, the rattled Incan forces instead chose to flee. They never entered the city, and they never engaged what was still a mysterious enemy. The plan to ambush and capture Atahualpa worked out better than Pizarro could have imagined. Indeed, it would prove to be a key moment in the conquest of Peru. Pizarro would famously keep Atahualpa as his prisoner until an adequate ransom could be provided. That ransom, by the way, was an entire room filled with gold. But even after receiving his gold room ransom, Pizarro still chose to try and execute Atahualpa based on some pretty flimsy charges. It was a move that even struck his fellow conquistadors and the king of Spain as especially vicious. The dramatic historical turning point that was the capture of Atahualpa is for Jared Diamond yet another historical test case, a moment that demonstrates the key deciding factors that explain why world history played out the way that it did. Diamond invites his reader to then trace the, quote, chain of causation in this extraordinary confrontation, end quote. He asks, quote, why did Pizarro capture Atahualpa and kill so many of his followers instead of Atahualpa's vastly more numerous forces capturing and killing Pizarro? After all, Pizarro had only 62 soldiers mounted on horses along with 106 foot soldiers, while Atahualpa commanded an army of about 80,000." The answer to this question for Diamond is fairly straightforward. He tells us simply that this all came down to the fact that the Spaniards had steel weapons, armor, horses, and guns. He sums it up by saying, quote, Such imbalances of equipment were decisive in innumerable other confrontations of Europeans with Native Americans and other peoples, end quote. Now, to be sure, the significance of steel, the psychological effect of gunpowder weapons— even ineffective 16th century gunpowder weapons, and the sometimes overlooked military power of horses, all were a huge part of what made Pizarro successful on that day. 
He also tells his readers that the Incan civil war that preceded Pizarro's arrival had been instigated by a plague of smallpox that had taken the life of the old Sapa Inca. In other words, Diamond's thesis is basically the title of his book. Pizarro captured Atahualpa because of guns, germs, and steel. From there, the question is, why did Pizarro have these things and the Incas did not? And from there, we go on a journey. Now, Diamond actually pulls a pretty clever rhetorical trick here. By presenting the kidnapping of Atahualpa with minimal context, the effect is that the story raises all sorts of questions. When a reader who is new to the history of the Inca Empire is parachuted into that dramatic and unlikely moment, you can't help but ask, how the heck did that happen? This clears the ground for Diamond to answer those questions with his elaborate geographic theory. But how convincing are these answers? Can our history really be understood simply in terms of a few technological and epidemiological factors brought on by some geographic quirks? Let's find out today on Our Fake History. Episode number 137, What's the Deal with Guns, Germs, and Steel, Part 2. Hello and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major and this is the podcast where we explore historical myths and try to determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. This week, we are returning to our examination of Jared Diamond's popular but controversial 1997 book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fates of Human Societies. But before we jump back in, I just want to let everyone know that this is the last call for questions for the upcoming Q&A show. That show goes out on July 27th, that's July 27th, 2021, for anyone listening deep in the future. So if you are listening right when this comes out, then you've got about a week if you want to ask a question. Remember, please send your questions to ourfakehistory at gmail.com, and please title your email Q&A question. Just keeps it easier for me. All right. So, as you have hopefully already put together, this is part two of a two-part series. And if you have not heard part one, then you really should go back and listen to that now for maximum enjoyment. Sometimes I hear that people find the show and they naturally just start with the most recent episode in the feed, but then they find themselves in the middle of a series wondering what the heck's going on. So if you are one of those people... Please do not start your OFH journey with a part two or a part three. Check the title of the show. Start with a part one. 
the whole experience will be far more satisfying. Anyway, back in part one of this series, I did my best to introduce Jared Diamond and the guiding questions that give Guns, Germs, and Steel its general shape. I looked at how Diamond claimed that his book was intended as an antidote, or at least a strong alternative, to the racist explanations that formerly had been used to explain how and why Europeans came to be colonial masters. I also spent some time outlining, in broad strokes, Diamond's theory that geographic factors, including the axes of the continents and the availability of easily domesticable plants and animal species, made all the difference in how human history played out. Or, as his subtitle grandly proclaims, these factors determined the, quote, fates of human societies. Today, my hope is to shine a light on the aspects of Diamond's theory that I find legitimately compelling. But then, I also want to take a short tour through some of the best, or at least most memorable, criticisms of this book. Finally, for those interested in my humble opinions... I'll give you my final thoughts on this text as a whole. Now, once again, I want to remind you that this tour through Guns, Germs, and Steel should in no way be considered comprehensive. I'm simply not going to be able to pick this book apart argument by argument. I leave that work to you, dear listener. I'm going to be focusing on elements of this book that I find particularly interesting. I will be leaving things out, so by all means, go deeper, learn more, and as always, draw your own conclusions. Okay, so first, let's talk about some of the elements of Diamond's theory in Guns, Germs, and Steel that are genuinely thought-provoking. Specifically, I'm interested in how animal domestication fits into what Diamond calls history's broadest pattern. So let's check it out. Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Ooh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.
For those of you who may have forgotten some of the details from the last episode, Jared Diamond's explanation for why human history played out the way it did in the broadest sense comes down to the characteristics of continental geography. Put simply, he argues that the people of Eurasia, the landmass that includes both Europe and Asia, benefited from a group of geographic conditions that made it easier for the people there to establish large sedentary societies, expand those societies into large empires, and transfer and trade knowledge between groups that are quite far apart. For Jared Diamond, these geographic factors are the long east-west axis of the Eurasian continent, the prevalence of easily domesticated plants that can become staple foods native to West Asia, and the large number of animals, and in particular large herbivores, on the Eurasian continent that can be domesticated and turned into sources of food and beasts of burden. In Diamond's estimation, these geographic factors gave the peoples of Eurasia a few key advantages that made their conquests possible when they encountered people from places like North and South America. Now, one thing I appreciate about guns, germs, and steel is that it challenges the perception that Europeans were just light years ahead of indigenous societies when they met in the 1500s. When you read the Spanish accounts of the conquest of Mexico or the Incan Empire, one thing that always jumps out at me is how impressed the Spanish are by the sophistication and complexity of these highly urban societies. They often write about how Aztec and Incan cities are bigger, cleaner, and in many ways just as sophisticated, if not more, than most European cities in that era. It can be easy to compare the arrival of Europeans in the Americas to a science fiction scenario where, you know, some technologically advanced aliens land on Earth and we are awed and overwhelmed by their flying saucers and ray guns. But, you know, this is a bad comparison. The fact is that indigenous society often impressed and bewildered the early European arrivals. This attests to the fact that these societies weren't as mismatched in every single way as is sometimes lazily assumed. With that said, they were mismatched when it came to a few key things that were hugely consequential in the context of warfare. Diamond simplifies this as guns, germs, and steel, but in the pages of his book, he also points out that ocean-going ships and horses were also hugely consequential. Now, the part of Diamond's argument that I found the most compelling as a younger reader, and still think is worth considering now, are his points about how domesticated animals play into this dynamic. Why have I fixated on this one aspect of Diamond's theory? Well, I think he makes a strong case that the history of animal domestication helps us understand the productive power of Eurasian societies, a key military advantage possessed by Eurasian societies, and perhaps most crucially, it explains why diseases carried by Europeans wreaked havoc on certain indigenous societies. 
Conversely, it helps us understand why diseases from North and South America didn't have a similar effect on Europe. Now, this is an instance where I may have actually learned some things from Diamond's book. But I should say here that because I'm not as well-versed in the world of biology, zoology, and science in general, I'm a little less able to be critical of what Diamond presents in these more science-focused chapters. As I mentioned in part one of this series, Diamond's historical examples are often imprecise and lack important context. He also ignores historical examples that might complicate or even disprove his theory, and I'm going to come back to that a little later. Now, these weaknesses jump out at me because I'm someone that has studied history and taught history for most of my life. With these more science-based arguments, I suppose I'm just a bit more credulous. Now, I know there are some scientists in the crowd out there, so I'm curious what all of you think of these arguments. But to be clear, I have read a number of criticisms of guns, germs, and steel, and not one of them has really taken issue with his botany or zoology. The critiques tend to be more about his uses and abuses of history and anthropology. So I looked for scientific critiques and I came up empty. All right, so let's get into it. In a chapter titled Zebras, Unhappy Marriages, and the Anna Karenina Principle, Diamond makes the case that the Eurasian continent was unique on the planet in that it was home to more large mammals that could be domesticated than any other. Now, crucially, he points out that there's a key difference between taming wild animals and domesticating a species. You see, people all over the world manage to capture wild animals, tame them, keep them as pets, or put them to work. You can find cultures where people keep pet bears, pet monkeys, or pet kangaroos. Elephants have been used as work animals and as beasts of war in Asia and North Africa. The people of the Eurasian steppe capture and train eagles as hunting birds, which, yeah, that's pretty badass, right? But these animals are not domesticated, as they all need to be captured from the wild. To be domesticated means that the animal is kept and bred in captivity by human beings. Centuries and millennia of selective breeding orchestrated by humans actually changes these animals from their wild cousins. For Diamond, the most crucial domesticated species are large herbivores, over 100 pounds, that can be used as substantial sources of protein, beasts of burden, and as war animals. He points out that there are only 14 animal species on planet Earth that are over 100 pounds and have been successfully domesticated by humans. The big five, as he calls them, are sheep, goats, pigs, cows, and horses. The minor nine are Arabian camels, Bactrian camels, llamas and alpacas, donkeys, reindeer, water buffalo, yak, bally cattle, and the mythan 
which uh, apparently is a South Asian cow-like creature. I had to look up the Mythan. Now, the crucial thing is that all of the wild ancestors of these domesticated animals, except notably alpacas and llamas, were indigenous to the Eurasian continent. All of them. Now, according to Diamond, Eurasia got lucky in that it had more wild animals that were good candidates for domestication. That means that they were a large animal over 100 pounds that could potentially be useful to human beings. Diamond calls these candidate species. Now, of the potential candidate species, Eurasia has 72. That's compared to Sub-Saharan Africa's 51 potential candidate species, the Americas' 24 species, and Australia's one lone species. But the other crucial point is, is that just because an animal seems like a good candidate for domestication, the vast majority of animal species cannot or will not be domesticated, despite the best efforts of human beings. Now, this is something that I had personally never considered before reading Guns, Germs, and Steel. Turns out, not all animals can be domesticated. Diamond colorfully dubs this the Anna Karenina Principle. This little literary allusion references the first line in the Tolstoy novel of the same name, which is, quote, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. End quote. The analogy here is that all domesticated animals are alike in a few crucial ways, and every animal that resists domestication does so for a slightly different reason. To explain this, Diamond identifies a few attributes that can keep animals from accepting human attempts to domesticate them. The first is growth rate. For an animal to be worth the effort of keeping, it needs to reach maturity relatively quickly. For instance, elephants and gorillas could potentially be great domesticated animals, but it takes them each about 15 years to reach full size. You need an animal that's going to get big and be useful relatively quickly. Next, there are potential problems with breeding in captivity. As any zookeeper could tell you, many animals do not breed well when they are kept captive. The example Diamond gives is the cheetah. Throughout human history, there have been many different attempts to domesticate cheetahs, some Egyptian pharaohs and a few Mughal emperors of India kept tamed cheetahs to use as hunting animals. Now, the logic here is simple to understand. Why have a hunting dog when you could have a hunting cheetah? But cheetahs never became properly domesticated, mostly because they just won't breed in captivity. The cheetah mating ritual involves a pair of males chasing down a female over many kilometers before eventually mating. If the cheetahs don't have the space to do this, they're just not going to mate. So despite the best efforts of kings who really wanted to have hunting cheetahs, 
the species remains wild. Many animal species have similar mating particularities that also keep them resistant to domestication. From there, Diamond points out that some species are just plain nasty or are too dangerous to be domesticated. Grizzly bears have a great growth rate and have no problem mating in captivity, but they are famously, um, you know, grizzly. A less obvious example used by Diamond are zebras. Now, zebras are close cousins to Eurasian horses, so they seem like perfect candidates for domestication. But they are cantankerous creatures who bite, kick, and are just way more dangerous than you might expect. This is also something that keeps gorillas and other great apes from accepting domestication. They're way too smart and way too dangerous. Related to this is also a tendency to panic. Some animals are just jumpy. Some are so easily spooked that they become useless to the would-be domesticator. This is true of many species of deer. Then, finally, the social structure of the animal species in the wild plays a huge part in whether or not they can be domesticated. Herd or pack animals with very well-defined dominance hierarchies tend to be the animals that accept domestication. In this way, a human being can step into a dominant role that is usually played by a single individual animal in a herd or a pack. That single dominant individual can exert control over a large group. So why did North American bighorn sheep resist domestication while Eurasian mouflon sheep were perfect candidates? Well, according to Diamond, it's because bighorns simply don't accept the dominance of a particular individual when in the wild. Mouflon do. Okay, so all of this is to make the point that human beings have tried and failed to domesticate countless animal species. Domestication only worked out with a handful. Of that handful, Diamond argues that only 14, his big five and minor nine species, really made a difference in the development of societies. Now, interestingly, virtually every animal species that has been domesticated was domesticated by 2500 BC. We have not domesticated more animals since then. We found the ones that worked And turns out there weren't many. Now, Eurasia was not only blessed with lots of large mammalian herbivores, it just so happened to have those few species that are able to be domesticated. Now, I'm willing to agree with Jared Diamond that this is a big deal. By raising large animals for food, those societies could simply feed more people and could grow more populous. Beasts of burden meant that they could build more easily and farm with greater efficiency. Domesticated horses are almost their own unique category, considering that they are absolutely devastating when weaponized. 
The fact that the Horsemen remained one of the most feared and effective battlefield units right up to World War I <laughs> tells you everything you need to know. In North and South America, the largest animal to be successfully domesticated was the llama. Llamas are excellent pack animals with wonderfully shaggy hides that are sheared and used for textiles. But llamas and alpacas, they're just not animals of war. They're of little use agriculturally, and they don't really thrive beyond their home in the Andes. So while Eurasians had horses, cows, donkeys, goats, and the list keeps going, North and South Americans? Llamas. And they were only really in one place. But the real clincher here has to do with disease. The fact that Eurasian people lived alongside horses, pigs, cows, goats, sheep, and all the other domesticated animals for millennia meant that they were exposed to all sorts of diseases that originate in animals. These are known as zoonotic diseases. You might remember from our series on the Black Death that the plague that swept Europe in the 14th century was a zoonotic disease. COVID-19, as far as we know, is a zoonotic disease. Now, the longer Eurasian folks lived with these animals and their diseases, more and more they developed immunities to those diseases. This gave the European conquerors in North and South America a biological weapon that at first they didn't even really know that they had. The impact of diseases like smallpox on indigenous populations was absolutely devastating. These diseases also struck the Mexica and Inca empires at crucial moments in their struggles with the invading Spanish. Now, it's hard to know if these conquests would have been successful had it not been for the diseases transmitted by Europeans. But you can make a strong case that things may have gone differently had it not been for smallpox. Now, if you take away the invaders' horses, well, then I think you have a very different outcome. Steel and guns are certainly powerful weapons, but if there was no smallpox and no horses, well, I think it's likely history would have played out differently. But again, this is just my opinion. So on this count, I've been convinced by Jared Diamond, given the tiny number of animals that can be successfully domesticated, the Eurasian continent was uniquely abundant. This helped those societies become larger and better fed. It also gave them two devastating weapons, horses and germs. I still find this argument compelling. This section of the book is also a great example of what makes guns, germs, and steel so persuasive. Complicated zoology is presented in a breezy, easily understandable manner, and it's knit together with a cute little Tolstoy analogy. Affable history podcasters, take note. But that does not mean that Jared Diamond is right about everything. Now that I've given Diamond some credit, I think it's time that we engage with the criticisms. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, 
Let's start picking this thing apart. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. When Guns, Germs, and Steel was first published in 1997, the reviews were overall pretty positive. Some were overflowing with praise, heralding Jared Diamond as nothing short of a genius. On the other end of the spectrum, there were reviews that were far more skeptical and raised questions about Diamond's methodology and overall conclusions. But even these skeptical reviews largely acknowledged that Diamond had put forward a few ideas worth considering. But as time went on and Guns, Germs, and Steel started to become a fixture on first-year reading lists, the criticisms of the book started to become more biting and decidedly less cordial. It's in reviews of some of Diamond's follow-up books that you start to see many of the most ferocious critiques of Guns, Germs, and Steel. The debate around the book seems to have reached a fever pitch around the mid-2000s, thanks to an anthropology blog known as Savage Minds that was contributed to by a number of anthropology PhDs. And indeed, it is very much from the discipline of anthropology that Diamond has received his most scathing rebukes. So according to the critics, what are the issues with this book? Well, the phrase that comes up again and again in critical articles about this book is geographic determinism. For those of you who aren't familiar with those $10 words, geographic determinism is just another way of saying that geography equals destiny. The criticism is that Guns, Germs, and Steel completely overemphasizes the role of geography in shaping how a society will develop. Indeed, Diamond does see the quote-unquote fates of human societies as being entirely tied to the quirks of local geography. Now, 
Most critics will concede that geography has a role to play in human development, but many take issue with Diamond's insistence that geographic factors are unambiguously the most important things one must consider when trying to understand history's broadest pattern. Diamond has little room in his work for things like religion, economics, politics, and other ideologies that may have contributed to the European quest for empire, and in fact, the quest for empire more generally. An early critical reader of Diamond's work, historian Tom Tomlinson, pointed this out in his review. Quote, Remarkably, for a book on this subject, there's only a brief mention of capitalism, where it is listed as one of the ten plausible but incomplete explanations of technical progress in Europe. It's significant that Yali's question, with which the book begins, was, why is it that white people develop so much cargo, but we black people had so little cargo of our own? Not, why do the top 10% of white people have so much cargo, but the bottom 10% have so little? Or, why is so much of the cargo in the world manufactured in the United States? A book seeking to answer such questions would have had to add a fourth totem of Western progress to its title and be called, perhaps, Guns, Germs, Steel, and Coca-Cola. End quote. I think that's an important point. To add on to that, Diamond says little about the specific economic motivators that pushed Europeans to sail westwards and southwards in the first place. The emerging pre-capitalist economies in the European states encouraged this type of adventurism. Products from the East could bring huge profits and the accompanying cultural status for the enriched parties. When you look closely at the history of European expansion in North and South America, you can't help but notice the setbacks, the disasters, the abandoned or destroyed colonies, and the indigenous resistance. Diamond chooses to focus on historical examples when great indigenous empires were suddenly and dramatically conquered. But this can give the impression that European colonization happened quickly. On the contrary, it was largely a slow process fraught with obstacles. Diamond never really asks, why did Europeans stick with this project when it was so dangerous and prone to failure? I think the answer has to do with two main things, money and religion. In his famous account of the conquest of Mexico, the Spanish conquistador Bernal Diaz wrote, quote, We came to serve God and to get rich, as all men wish to do. End quote. I think this one sentence speaks volumes about the motivating ideologies at the heart of the colonial project. Europeans were doggedly persistent in their pursuit of global empires. Often, these empires were created almost as a byproduct of commercial interests. 
Let's not forget that Hernan Cortez's choice to head to Mexico with an army was essentially an act of mutiny. His direct superiors did not want him to do this. So why did he go? Because the risks were worth the reward. His society was constructed in a way that he would be rewarded if he was successful. Gold and glory were important. And in the emerging capitalist world, gold and glory were deeply connected. Think of the British and Dutch East India companies, private businesses who carved out odd proto-empires. They endured massive setbacks, but they persisted in undermining governments around the world simply in the name of profit. The emerging European economy rewarded this type of risk-taking. Failures and setbacks were merely the cost of doing business. And in European society at that time, that was considered all good. When you add to that that Europeans were also devoted to various forms of a proselytizing religion, you are given yet another crucial cultural motivator— The religious ideas of the day taught that Christians had a duty to convert the heathens. It also followed that non-Christians, and especially pagans, were not due the same level of dignity, chivalry, or respect reserved for other Christians or even other monotheists. The problem with Diamond is that he doesn't really account for the human motivations behind a lust for empire or a lust for wealth. Now, to be fair, he does not say that colonialism was good or that it should have happened. In fact, he's quite clear that these colonial encounters were usually violent, brutal, and exploitative. However, his theory has a way of suggesting that it was all inevitable. As I mentioned in part one, The way he frames the Maori conquest of the Moriori on the Chatham Islands is that it was just bound to happen. He in no way addresses the immediate context of the displacement caused by New Zealand's musket wars, and I think that's kind of important. Similarly, it's suggested by his theory that the key advantages of guns, germs, and steel awarded to Eurasians through quirks of geography pushed Pizarro inevitably towards the litter of Atahualpa. The critics say it's just way more complicated than that, and I kind of agree. The historian Timothy Burke has pointed out that, quote, Anthropologists and historians interested in non-Western and Western colonialism also get a bit uneasy with a big-picture explanation of world history that seems to cancel out or radically de-emphasize the importance of the many small differences and choices after 1500, whose effects many of us study carefully, end quote. Burke also writes, quote, For example, it seems to me that if you want to answer Yali's question with regards to Latin America versus the United States, you've got to think about the peculiar, particular kinds of political, legal, and religious frameworks that differentiated Spanish colonialism in the New World from British and French colonialism. 
Otherwise, a Latin American Yali might feel a bit dissatisfied with Diamond's answer. End quote. Now, I think this is a great point. Burke both makes the case that Diamond has little room for human agency and decision making in his work, and that Diamond's theory has serious limits in its explanatory power. The ultimate history of Latin America, as compared to the United States, is in no way accounted for by Jared Diamond's elaborate theory. And if I can build off that, I kept on thinking about the subcontinent of India and how Diamond's theory in no way accounts for that country's history. Let me explain what I mean here. India benefited in all the same ways that Europe did from the shape of the Eurasian continent and the easily domesticated plants and animals. And indeed, when Europeans started interacting more regularly with India's Mughal Empire in the 16th and 17th centuries, they found the Indians well-equipped with guns, germs, and steel. It would literally take centuries for the balance of power on the subcontinent to tip in favor of the European interlopers. To understand the colonial project in India, Guns, Germs, and Steel offers no satisfying explanations. Instead, I would argue that you need to understand the European economic and religious motivators for going there in the first place and staying there despite innumerable setbacks. It was hardly inevitable that by the mid-19th century, the British would control the whole subcontinent. In fact, at the time that Pizarro conquered Peru, the thought of an English India was laughable. Now, this is something that I want to explore in considerably more detail in a future series. But for now, I hope you will allow that Diamond's geographic factors simply do not account for the fate of Indian society. Now, what about those really ferocious critiques of Jared Diamond? I've been hinting at them throughout this series. You know, the people calling guns, germs, and steel academic porn, or the article F. Jared Diamond. Let's start with F. Jared Diamond. As I've been teasing throughout this series, that was the title of an editorial written by the geographer and professor of American studies, David Correa. The article appeared in an academic journal called Capitalism, Nature, Socialism in 2013. As the title might suggest, the entire article is shot through with a type of punk rock irreverence for traditional decorum or the conventionally polite tone of academic discourse. At one point, the author very pointedly calls Jared Diamond's entire writing career a, quote, crime spree. So that gives you a flavor of it. But this editorial is instructive in that it sums up an entire genre of criticism against Jared Diamond. And that criticism is that his work helps provide an intellectual justification for the continued inequalities and systems of oppression at work in our world. Critics like David Correa or maybe it's pronounced Coria, I'm not quite sure. But critics like him 
alleged that by explaining the history of colonialism as the outcome of a few quirks of geography, then Jared Diamond is letting the colonialists off the hook. David Correa, Correa would sum up the book like this, quote, It develops an argument about human inequality based on a determinist logic that reduces social relations such as poverty, state violence, and persistent social domination to inexorable outcomes of geography and environment, end quote. He later continues, quote, His books do not merely sanitize a history of colonial violence, they are its disinfectant, end quote. Whoa. This line of argumentation is actually quite similar to some of the essays that were found on the Savage Minds blog that I mentioned earlier. University of Alberta professor Kathleen Lowry wrote on Savage Minds that the problem with guns, germs, and steel was that it affirms that, quote, no one but God has any historical responsibility and that the world as we know it is a regrettable inevitability. It poisonously whispers, mope about colonialism, slavery, capitalism, racism, and predatory neo-imperialism all you want. But these were, slash are, nobody's fault. This is a wicked cop-out. Worse still, it is a profound insult to all non-Western cultures slash societies. It basically says that they're sort of pathetic. But bless their hearts, they couldn't help it. Such an assertion tramples upon all that anthropology holds dear, and it's a sham sort of anti-racism, end quote. Yeah, Lowry does not pull any punches in that article. But I think there's some food for thought here. As I've already said, I agree that the suggestions of historical inevitability baked into Diamond's theory is truly one of its greatest weaknesses. I think Lowry is right to criticize the complete lack of human agency and therefore human responsibility in Diamond's account of world history. However, I will push back a little bit on the idea that the book is, quote, poisonously whispering that colonialism, slavery, and exploitation in general are somehow excusable. Throughout Guns, Germs, and Steel, Diamond often talks about the injustice, violence, and brutality inherent in the colonial project. Now, I'll actually let Diamond defend himself on this point, because he actually addresses this criticism in the book's prologue. There, he writes, quote, One objection goes as follows. If we succeed in explaining how some people came to dominate other people, may this not seem to justify the domination? Doesn't it seem to say that the outcome was inevitable and that it would therefore be futile to try and change the outcome today? This objection rests on a common tendency to confuse an explanation of causes with a justification or acceptance of results. What use one makes of a historical explanation is a question separate from the explanation itself. Understanding is more often used to try and alter an outcome than repeat or perpetuate it. That's why psychologists try to understand the minds of murderers and rapists, 
why social historians try to understand genocide, and why physicians try to understand the causes of human disease. Those investigators did not seek to justify murder, rape, genocide, and illness. Instead, they seek to use their understanding of a chain of causes to interrupt the chain. End quote. Okay, so if you buy Diamond's explanation, then he's not trying to perpetuate systems of oppression. He's merely trying to understand how they came to be so that they might be undone. Now, readers like Lori and Korea were pretty unconvinced by this. For me, I don't know, I'm willing to take Jared Diamond at his word on this one. While I do think these criticisms are worth considering, I'm just not entirely convinced. I find the book sloppy, but not malicious. Now, by the way, the article F. Jared Diamond is actually one of the worst critiques of the book I have come across. The author, Korea Korea, explicitly conflates Diamond's brand of geographic determinism with 19th century social Darwinism without much interest in nuance. His editorial is also less about Jared Diamond himself and more about economists like Jeffrey Sachs, who use some of Diamond's ideas as a way of obfuscating tough questions about capitalism. So despite its provocative title, I found this article to be pretty disappointing. Finally, why is this book academic porn, according to some? Well, that little turn of phrase comes from an anthropologist named Jason Antrosio, whose blog, Living Anthropologically, is home to a number of critical essays on Diamond that are among the best out there. Antrosio adds to the critique in a constructive way, by pointing out that Diamond is particularly bad when it comes to the role of allied indigenous people in the European conquests of the New World. He's pointed out that Diamond is very dismissive when it comes to the role of indigenous people in the toppling of the old empires, especially in the conquests of Mexico and Peru. Now, this is something that popped out to me as well. I think that Cortes could have never conquered Tenochtitlan had it not been for the many thousands of indigenous allies who rallied to his banner, keen to throw off the yoke of the Mexica. This is especially true of the Tlaxcalan people, who were particularly fierce early allies of Cortes. Similarly, after the dramatic events at Cajamarca, Pizarro, too, was able to attract huge indigenous armies to his side of the conflict. Diamond shrugs this stuff off in Guns, Germs, and Steel, and I agree with Antrosio that that is a huge oversight. But the idea that the book is academic porn is actually more of a comment on its style. As Antrosio puts it, quote, Diamond peppers the text with lots of cool stories and anecdotes, but it always goes back to the same factors. The costumes change, the props change, but in the end, it's the same repeated theme, end quote. His point is that like pornography, the book is repetitive, 
and always comes back to the same predictable payoff, chapter after chapter. Now, part of this, I think, is Diamond keeping in mind his popular audience. The repetitive style keeps a more casual reader from getting lost. To seasoned academics used to wading through dense articles and weighing complex arguments, I get it. It can feel a little lightweight, cloying, maybe a little predictable. Entrosio is suggesting that the argument does not get deeper as the book progresses. In every chapter, the pizza guy just keeps coming to the door, if you catch my meaning. Okay. In the end, here is where I am at personally with guns, germs, and steel. And as always, I encourage you to draw your own conclusions, but these are mine. So, I think that this book is an interesting but flawed attempt at answering a worthy question. I do think Diamond makes a strong case that some geographic factors have influenced how our history has unfolded. The argument that still remains the most compelling for me has to do with those domesticated animals. I've been persuaded that Eurasia's unique abundance of large wild animals that would accept domestication deeply affected the societies of that continent and contributed to how deadly they were when they encountered people from North and South America. However, the book has all sorts of problems. Diamond's historical examples are presented with only as much context as will help him make his point. Like, don't you think it's relevant that Atahualpa had only been the emperor of the Incas for like a couple months before he met Pizarro? Don't you think it's relevant that he had just won a brutal civil war and was considered a usurper by a huge portion of the population? Diamond presents him as an uncontested god-king in that particular chapter because it helps him underscore his point about Spanish technological advantages. But this is only partially true, and it's complicated by a more thorough examination of history. Diamond does a very similar thing with the Maori and the Moriori. Diamond also ignores large swaths of history that complicate and potentially undermine his theory. As I mentioned earlier, the history of India is not a great fit for this theory. Finally, Diamond leaves little room in guns, germs, and steel for historical forces like politics, economics, religion, and ideology. Now, I know that guns, germs, and steel, and economics, and religion, and ideology doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the same way, but I think it might get us closer to a more nuanced understanding of how our history played out the way that it did. So, the big question, should you read Guns, Germs, and Steel? I'm going to say yes, you should. But, with a pretty big caveat, you should read this book very skeptically and in conjunction with the criticisms. I still think this book is worth considering, but it's not where you should stop 
if you're trying to make sense of the history of the world. If you're a teacher out there and you're debating whether or not to have this book on a reading list, well, I'd say sure, but I would encourage you to also have the critical articles from Tom Tomlinson and Jason Ontrosio on your syllabus as well. And if you want something a bit more provocative, then maybe throw on Kathleen Laurie's article too. And yes, I will link to all of these articles on the page for the show at ourfakehistory.com. I believe that if you're going to teach guns, germs, and steel, then this is one where you really have to teach the debate. And if you don't have time to engage with the book that critically, then I think it's best to leave it off the reading list. So I don't think Guns, Germs, and Steel is a work of genius. But I also don't think it's the work of some academic charlatan, a sham anti-racist, or an exploitative opportunist. It's a big swing, and for all its flaws, it connects just enough to get a runner on base. But not much more than that. Okay, that's all for this week. Join us again in two weeks' time for the season finale of season six of the show. It's our Q&A show two weeks from now, so if you have any final questions for me, please send them to ourfakehistory at gmail.com and label your email Q&A question. Before we go this week, I'd like to give a shout-out to the following people. Big ups to... Michael A. Dunn, Ashley Cooling, Cobra SS, or is it Cobras? Charles Pisatillo, Yasir Salim, Daniel Runyon, and Stephen Olson... All of you folks have decided to pledge at $5 or more every month. And so you know what that means. You're beautiful human beings. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you to everyone who supports on Patreon at every level. Thank you to people that buy one-off episodes. Thank you to people that do one-time donations. And thank you to everyone that just listens in general. Quick message to my patrons. Uh, I know I keep on teasing this extra episode about Ethiopia's Jewish population. Well, here is my solemn promise. You will get that extra episode before the next regular episode comes out. That is my guarantee. I've said it out loud on the podcast now, so if I don't get hit that deadline, it's just huge embarrassment. So... Uh, Keep watching your feed, patrons. That extra episode is uh, right around the corner. You will get it before you hear my voice again on the free feed. I promise. So if you want to get that new extra episode or you just want to support the podcast in general, think about going to patreon.com slash ourfakehistory, checking out the level of support that works for you, and then getting all the amazing extras that come with that support. There are literally... Now, uh, well over a dozen extra episodes and other cool features that you get at the different levels of support. 
If you want to get in touch with me, you can always send me an email at ourfakehistory at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at ourfakehistory. You can hit me up on Instagram at ourfakehistory. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash ourfakehistory. The theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. You can check out Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. And all the other music you heard on the show today was written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major, and remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.